Let's continue to worship with a reading from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Beat me to the punch there, Jack. How's everyone doing? Man, awesome. Glad you're here. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome. Um, my name's Chris. I'm super happy to welcome you today. Um, you've joined us as we are cranking up our absolute favorite season of the year, Lent. Um, that's a joke. All of us are miserable. Um, that's also a joke, and neither of those make sense if you weren't here last week. Uh, Lent is a season in the church that, uh, that this church has historically observed, uh, which is about a 40-day period of fasting, prayer, and repentance, and intercession leading up to Easter morning. It's a format that, what we said last week, echoes the rhythms of gospel truth so that every year we remember some things that, honestly, we'd rather forget, uh, primarily things in the Bible, things that the Bible insists are true uh, that don't really portray humanity in the kind of flattering light that we'd prefer. Uh, it calls us to sit with truths uh, that, if we're honest, a lot of proclaiming Christians um, have tried to dismiss and really kind of push under the cultural rug um, because they are so dramatically out of step with cultural sentiment these days. Um, the, the, the truths that the Lent calls us to sit with are so counterintuitive, um, so out of step with our culture, that many Christians have just said, hey, listen, we know the Bible says stuff like this, but we, we can't keep saying stuff. People are going to leave, right? You can't, you can't talk about sin anymore or repentance. No one likes that. Everyone's still a little touchy after the whole, you know, angry God sinner thing and Westboro Baptist, you know, and Roman Catholics, you know, it's just, we can't talk like that. So, so they get out a razor blade, they start cutting out parts of the Bible they don't like. Um, it's very, very popular actually uh, to do that. Maybe not physically, right? But they turn a blind eye to certain ideas that the Bible brings up, says is true, um, claims is true, and says, yeah, I mean, this part's good, we like this part, but this part, this doesn't really apply to us anymore for this reason or for that. And, you know, we've evolved and maybe God's evolved. And I believe in a God, you know, like this, um, like you've probably heard on, you know, TV and stuff like that. You know, I, but what we have to see is when we do that, um, not only have you become the authority um, in that religious arena, right? You've become the authority, but you've essentially created an imaginary God of your own making. Um, and, and whoever it is you worship, it's not the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself. You've come up with that God. And that's a God that fits in with your modern understanding of the world and is just as much a product as your culture as you are. Right. Right? So in contrast, uh, we believe 
that the entire Bible, y'all, is the primary way, though not the only way, the prime, one of the primary ways God has chosen to reveal himself to us, which means that we do not ignore some things or elevate one thing at the expense of another in the Bible. We take it as it is. We take it all. And Lent basically reminds us that we are created beings, created from dust, and to dust we will return. And that's what we talked about last week. It calls us to remember our place in the universe, that you were made for glory, and now are subject to death and decay because of sin. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about that, right? Uh, We're all going to die one day. Welcome to church. No, we get very uncomfortable with death, y'all. Death is humanity's most despised, hated foe. Look, I mean, just... Think of all the industries that sit on top of the illusion that you can postpone growing old and even avoid death, (laughs) Think, Think of all the scientific strivings to live longer, right? I mean, thousands and thousands of years of witch doctors, scientists, and spiritual gurus claimed they figured out how to avoid death, right? How to postpone death, right? And I'd argue uh, that same disdain and effort to conquer death is just as strong today as it's ever been, right? And so you may be thinking, well, you know, science has come a long way, man. Like, I saw this movie where they uploaded Johnny Depp's consciousness into a supercomputer, you know? So science is probably going to get, they've frozen, you know, scientists' head and stuff like that. Okay, well, that's the modern equivalent of King Arthur's Holy Grail, That's the modern equivalent of the fountain of youth, right? Our hearts, y'all, are so uncomfortable with death that we are tempted to believe. We we want to believe that that we can, if we get together and put our minds together, we can can conquer this thing, right? And many of us live in the illusion that we will never die. Uh, But Lent calls us not just to remember your mortality, if that's not chipper enough, right? (laughs) Not just just to remember that, hey, you're made of dust and to dust you're going to return, but even what's more popular with the kids, it calls you to remember that you are dust that has rebelled against its creator, right? It calls us to remember, (laughs) you can see why it's the best season of the year, right? It calls us to remember that death and decay, and all the horrible, wicked evils in the world are a result of a deception that continually leads me and you uh, to believe that we know more than God. That's what we're called to remember, that we're struggling with this nonstop every day, every hour, every week. We're struggling to believe that God knows better than us when it comes to human flourishing, right? So what we said last week, if all that's true, right, really, really fun stuff, if all that's true, Humanity as a whole has a sort of amnesia, uh a kind of stubborn ignorance about their own position in the universe, right? Rooted in pride, rooted in arrogance, and this inner brokenness works itself out in all sorts of creative and horrible ways, right? If that's true, then a massive, in-the-depth recalibration, revolution, has to occur in our hearts for us to enter life, if this is true. Because what the Bible is going to say is, listen, what's wrong with the world's not out there somewhere. I mean, I love that kind of talk, <laughs> right? How easy is it to find injustice and hypocrisy in politics or education or corporations or church or other people that go to church? I mean, we love that kind of talk, don't we? It's so easy, so easy. Man, see, the Bible's not going to fall for those convenient, 
oversimplified scapegoats. It's going to say, actually, the problem's not in a system, man. It's in the beings that create and sustain those systems. The problem's inside the human heart, mine and yours included. Right? And you can, and this is the thing about this. That might feel like, oh, okay, heavy handed religion, okay? But you could point to a bajillion movies that say the exact same thing in our day to day. All right? The problem's inside us, even the good guys, right? We struggle to apply it just to ourselves. But that's not what we're digging into today. Today, I want to explore uh, one of the biblical practices that invites us into a kind of self awareness of our position in the, in the cosmos. So let me, let me, intro it this way. Let's just say that up to this point, you've been listening very politely, which I I really appreciate, right? But you're a little suspicious of talk like this. It kind of feels guilt-laden, a little heavy-handed. Or maybe you're just like, dude, this is trash. You don't, you know, this is, people aren't the problem, dude, right? It's the culture, it's politics, that's the problem, right? It's the systems, right? (laughs) Because you know, you're freaking awesome, right? And, like, right now, it's like, dude, yeah, I mean, other people are messed up, Chris. I get that. But, dude, me? I've busted my tail, bro. I've worked hard, man. I love my family, my taxes. I'm self-sufficient, man. I make it happen. I made my, make my life, man. Come on. Like, back up, man. And honestly, right, you don't think you need to have a deep excavation of the heart or whatever you called it, right? In fact, you look at your life, and you're pretty pleased, man. You did the work, man. You busted your, you got that raise, right? You put a ring on it, man. Bought that house. You pay that mortgage, right? And you don't see why religious people always got to talk about repentance and guilt and all that kind of stuff. So you might even fall in that camp that's like, man, you know what? I really do think, Chris, like if humanity just like came together, you know, like if we just all just stopped fighting, just loved each other, big group hug, kind of kumbaya thing, except without God. But if we just come together, right, in science, we can conquer sickness, man. We can do it. Look, you're not alone. A lot of people think that, right? And if you think that you, you are, humanity is completely self-sufficient, self-made, self-sustaining, like, like many in our society totally believe, all right? That's like the air we breathe, y'all. Self-made, self-sustaining, I'm enough. You guys know that one? You know, I'm enough. I believe in myself, right? I'm unstoppable. <laughs> no one tells me what to do. Okay, you know that one? Okay, I have an experiment for you. If, you just, if your just heart is just kind of drawn into that, right? Let's love that kind of stuff. I dare you to go 48 hours without food and see how completely self-sufficient you feel after that. See what happens to all that bravado and all that I'm enough talk 48 hours after food, no food. I'll tell you what will happen, man. In six hours, your body will begin to tell you something. You know, what's, you know what it's going to be saying? In 10 hours, it's going to start screaming it at you. You know what your body's going to say? You are not self-sufficient. You are not self-sustaining. You alone, without any outside resources, are not enough. In reality, you are a being that desperately needs other things, other people's, other resources to survive. Not, I mean, much less thrive, right? Dare you. 48 hours without food. See how self-sufficient you really are because your body will begin screaming at you. If you don't eat something soon, I'm going to shut down, right? But I'll tell you what will happen before that. I'll tell you what will happen before your body starts screaming at you. Just go without dinner one night and all the annoyances and frustrations in your life will begin to surface, right? You think, you think, I'm a stable person, like my emotions are in check, my mind is in check. Go without dinner, right? And all the things you cover up with the comfort of food will begin to surface in your life. The word I'm talking about, obviously, you know at this point, is fasting, which is what we're going to dig into today. Now, the first thing we need to point out when we talk about fasting is it is a universal religious practice. 
Fasting, Christians don't have the edge on fasting, y'all. Fasting's been around. Most religions prescribe, see value in some sort of fasting, all for different reasons. Jews fast on Yom Kippur. Muslims fast during Ramadan. Gandhi fasted. Remember all that stuff, right? Buddhists fast all the time, like all the time, right? Fasting even has a secular resurgence right now. Do you get me? You can read article after article about the benefits of intermittent fasting. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so I want to explore what Christians mean when they talk about fasting. All right, so number one, first and foremost, I want to answer the question, is fasting a New Testament expectation for followers of Christ? This is an important question, okay? Because there are some who say it is not, right? And I'm, like, I, you know, in, I'm betting there's a good number of us, uh, whether in theory or in practice, would say, well, I don't know, you know, right? Never fasted, you know, whatever. So, so what biblical evidence do we see that fasting is an expected practice for New Testament Christians? That's the first question I want to dig into. The second question I want to dig into is, if it is, what are the purposes we see in the Bible for fasting that make our fast distinctly Christian? Okay, so if, I don't know if that feels daunting to you. It does to me. A few disclaimers before we jump in. Um, this is, this is, this is going to be kind of a shotgun sermon. That's not to be confused with a shotgun wedding. That's very different. Uh, <laughs> What, what I mean is I'm not going to have a single argument in a logical step that's from A to B. And if you're like, do you normally do that? Yes, I normally try to make it logical. Okay. And number two, uh, most of the content that I'm delivering to you today uh, is, is from John Piper's book on fasting uh, called A Hunger for God. And I highly commend it to you as a companion for the season of Lent. We don't have it in the bookstore. You can get it online or Kindle. The other book I would highly commend to you as an aside uh, for, for the season of Lent is Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods which is in the bookstore, um, and it's cheap. So let me pray for us, y'all, and let's get into it. Jesus, I ask that you would um, give clarity to our thinking. Lord, I, I pray that right now you would speak peace to our hearts, God. I pray that we would be able to sit with Scripture in a new way that would impact and form how we think about the world and how we think about our lives. Holy Spirit, come and lead us into the truth that we would not get to without you. Thank you, God. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Is fasting an expectation for followers of Christ? It's an important thing to think about because there are scholars who would say fasting um, is not in step with the resurrected, victorious walk of Christian joy. Okay? And you might understand that. A lot of people, in theory or practice, have dismissed fasting as a Christian. Why? Why have they done this? Well, let me tell you why. It's a pretty good reason why, actually. You're going to see this, right? Colossians dismisses external forms of ascetic practices as insufficient when it comes to combating fleshly indulgences. You know that verse? Colossians 2.23. If with Christ you died to the elemental princes of the world, why, as if though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, fasting, do not touch these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Your translation might say will worship, worship of the will, right? And have aesthetic and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul is addressing people who have strayed away from the faith, right? And have insisted on harsh ascetic practices, avoiding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. This is 1 Timothy 4. And in response to these things, he says, y'all, Everything is created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Okay, there's another one. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, Paul says, hey, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse if we do or do not eat. Oh, I got that wrong. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. 
Luke 18. So this is a big, this is, these are all the people, arguments people would point to to say, hey, look, this is fasting, really? Do we have to talk, you know, right? right? Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable and contrasts a Pharisee with a tax collector. You remember this parable? The Pharisee says he fasts twice a week and submits to very harsh legalistic rules. Tax collector won't look up to heaven. And who's the guy that goes home justified? Well, it wasn't the guy who fasts twice a week. Okay? Then, of course, the passage we read earlier, when Jesus asked, hey, why don't your disciples fast? Did you read that one earlier? And Jesus talks about new wineskins, right? And some have interpreted that to mean all external forms, including fasting, are old wineskins. We tracking? Okay? So you got to throw those out, right? So there's a lot of scriptural argument that you could point to to say, well, hey, man, pretty solid argument. New Testament, we don't need to fast, right? To all of our relief, right? Dodge that bullet. Whew, you know? <laughs> the only problem <laughs> is you have to ignore some stuff to get there. Like in, Luke 15, or in Matthew 9, 15, when, he, when Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom's taken away, and then they're going to fast. So, okay, do we, now we have to step back and ask a larger question, all right? I know this is going to be this kind of heady, and we're really getting in the weeds here, but it's important, I think. We have to ask a larger question. Do we see any fasting portrayed positively in the New Testament at all? Can anyone think of anyone? I mean, you know, you can, you know. So the, the answer is yes. What'd you say? Saul? Church in Antioch. Any other examples of positive fasting in the New Testament? Jesus fasted. Yeah. Demons fasted. Yeah, there are. There are. So the first thing you might think of is Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when Jesus fasted for how long? 40 days, 40 nights, right? Where the spirit, very interesting language, the spirit leads him into the wilderness. That's worth some reflection. And it's after a time of testing and fasting, which he then launches into his public ministry. It's after a time of testing and fasting that he launches into uh, one of the most fruitful seasons humanity has ever seen. Which is, and there's this really interesting biblical theme of seasons of wilderness, fasting, and testing that precede and prepare for seasons of abundance and fruitfulness and blessing and salvation. This theme reaches way back to the Old Testament as well. Moses fasted 40 days before receiving the Ten Commandments. The people fasted for Esther when she risked her life to save the Jews, resulting in their salvation. Nehemiah fasted so that he might have permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Do you know what that resulted in? National revival, the book of Nehemiah. So Jesus fasted before launching into his ministry, which results in the greatest salvation ever to be offered to earth. And in the book of Acts, which some of you are thinking about, we, which is the book of Acts, our most clear example of what the church is supposed to be, we also see fasting in Acts 13 and 14. We see the church fasting corporately for direction as a part of worship. In Acts 13 too, I'll read it to you. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We, the next chapter, there's another example of it. In Acts 23, we also see an example of fasting in the New Testament, but that's a bunch of dudes that said, I'm not going to eat until I kill Paul. That's murder fasting. That's not the kind of fasting we're talking about. Okay. So John points out, John Piper points out the significance of the prayer and fasting in Acts 13. He says, this significance cannot be understated. Let me read it to you. Before this, there had been no organized missions past the eastern sea coast of the Mediterranean. Paul had yet gone to Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, Spain, to whom he would write most of the New Testament letters to. 
So this corporate prayer and fasting was one of the catalysts for his missionary efforts resulting in much of the New Testament in your hands right now, right? Another example of prayer and fasting preceding seasons of mission and fruitfulness and fulfilling God's purposes in the earth, man. It's amazing. But maybe one of the most clear indicators that Jesus seems to think his followers will fast is in Matthew 6, in the most famous sermon ever given, on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting, that their fasting may be seen by others. So this is a very important distinction here. Jesus is differentiating a kind of fasting from the kind of fasting he wants. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus seems to think his disciples will fast, but their fasting will be markedly different from other religions' fasting. Okay? Now, Okay, I know I probably just answered a bunch of questions you weren't asking, but I think it's important for us to sit with this. Because if you're anything like me in my past and my growing up, even as an adult, I had no interest in fasting as a Christian and never did it. In fact, I would probably dare say many of us in this room are Christians, have been Christians for a long time, but have never fasted. And because for me, I was just like, man, I'm just so pumped up about the joy of God in my life, right? My cup overfloweth, bro, you know? I ain't got time for fasting. I'm on the hallelujah train, you know? I've got a river of life, you know, let's just be happy about it, right? And, and now, and if you would have cornered me and said, okay, but is fasting a Christian thing? I would have said, oh, yeah, totally. It's a, just, not, just not for me, you know? <laughs> but if you think about it, what that kind of reveals is a faith that was really centered around my comfort because even part of the biblical purposes for fasting is interceding for those who don't have that joy, right? So let's shift now into the biblical purposes for fasting. And what we see in the Bible is fasting has two thrusts to it, two main thrusts. It has an an inward thrust and an outward thrust, okay? Now, historically, we've always focused more on the inward, so I want to focus today on the outward. So what is the outward thrust of fasting? Next week, we'll get to the inward, okay? So one aspect of the outward thrust of biblical fasting is fasting is a way the people of God throughout history have made request to God. This is what we see in Scripture. It's a way they acknowledge their limitations and ask God to do things they did not have the power or control to do. So 2 Chronicles 20, which is something we mentioned a couple weeks ago in our last series, right? Remember when they sent the worship band into the battle first? Those poor saps, okay? Um, It says, uh, a great multitude of armies were coming towards uh, Judah, and the king calls a fast. Jehoshaphat's the king, and they pray, Okay? And if you look at King Jehoshaphat's prayer, it's basically, while they're fasting, because these armies are, are barreling down on them, multiple, multiple armies barreling down on them, right? His prayer is basically, Lord, you're powerful. We are not. Please help us. Second Chronicles 20, 12. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is a wonderful um, thrust of biblical fasting in that sentence alone right there. One of the purposes of fasting is a way of dealing with the overwhelming forces at play in your life that are outside of your control. It's a way to confess your limitations in your scenarios. I don't know what to do. I feel overwhelmed and confess God's complete control over any given scenario. 
Now, does that mean fasting is a way to get whatever you want from God? Absolutely not. It means when we fast, we are saying more than physical bread, more than military might, more than all my wisdom, God, I need you. I need you. My friends need you. We are saying when we fast, all of our efforts are powerless and will ultimately come up short when it comes to protecting and sustaining our life. It's a way of saying, every part of me is in your hands, God. And I trust you to sustain and save and comfort me and those around me in a way that food could never do, right? This is fasting for direction, for deliverance, for salvation, and for others. This is what we see in the Bible. We see this kind of prayer and fasting almost always preceding revivals in history. Almost always, right? It's when people get in touch with their great desperate need for God. It's when your need for God grips you and you are compelled to fast and pray. That you're, you, it's, it's a way that you dig in and push harder and ask God for divine intervention in areas of your life that you are admitting you don't have power or control over. And here's the thing, man. God just tends to answer those who cry out to him. I mean, the answer may be no. It may be not yet. But what we know is God's close to the humble in heart. It says a broken and contrite heart, he won't despise. Another type of fasting that reflects a longing or a waiting on God to save, we see in Anna and Simeon at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2. These two were waiting on the consolation of Israel, comfort, the comfort of Israel. And it says Anna is this 84-year-old widow who did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying night and day. These two... Anna and Simeon, are portrayed as yearning for, longing for the coming of the Messiah. And for Anna, the, uh, part of their heart longing for Christ to come and comfort her people was fasting. So when Jesus says, hey, when I'm not physically here, my followers, are, they're going to fast. It, it's fasting then that reveals what John Piper calls the central heart cry of the New Testament, which is, uh, Maranatha. You know what that means? Maranatha. It's a Latinized term. It means, come, Lord Jesus. This fasting is the heart cry of the, the New Testament. Uh, it reveals or it gets at the heart, expresses the heart, which is, come, Lord Jesus. In fact, he says, fasting is the exclamation point at the end of the phrase, come, Lord Jesus. I love that. It's an emphasis on it. Let me quote a bit for you, okay? We have tasted the powers of the age to come, and our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we've not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real, it's so satisfying, we must have all that it's possible to have. The newness of Christian fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. The new fasting, Christian fasting, is a hunger for all the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and by the taste of God's goodness in the gospel of Christ. I love that. He goes on. Hunger and thirst were created for the glory of Christ, and fasting was created for the glory of Christ, which means bread magnifies Christ in two ways, by being eaten with gratitude for his goodness and by being forfeited out of hunger for God himself. 
When we eat, we taste the emblem of our heavenly food, the bread of life. And when we fast, we say, I love the reality above the emblem. You tracking with that? Like God gave us food for a reason. And when we eat it, we are rejoicing in the goodness of God. And now we have this picture of what food does to our body. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, what's he call himself? The bread of life. What is he trying to say to your soul? He's trying to say, man, that you need him like you need bread. And some of us are so disconnected from that need. Some of us spiritually just completely malnourished because we don't see Jesus as an essential ingredient for the health of our soul. We just don't, y'all. We don't see him as a necessity for the sustenance of my life and vibrancy and joy. But when he calls himself the bread of life, he's trying to tell you something. He's trying to say, you're not going to get far down the road unless you, what he says, eat my flesh is what he said in John 6. It's crazy. A bunch of people said, this is weird. We're out of here, man. Ain't about that, right? But he's trying to get at something, y'all. He's trying to communicate. And so what John Piper is saying is when we fast, we are saying, I love the reality. I love, I love the reality behind the symbol. The symbol's bread. The reality is, is Christ, right? So Anna, in the Bible, in Luke, fasted as she longed for salvation, for comfort to come, All right? Salvation freely granted in Christ now to us, and we fast to express a longing for the full consummation of his victory to be made manifest in the earth. Okay, what's that really technical sentence mean? Well, it means that Christian fasting is a heart cry that his glory would fill the earth like the waters fill the sea. Christian fasting is giving, here it is, this is what I mean by that. It's giving voice to the visceral impulse we all have uh, to see what is wrong in the world made right. That's what it's getting at. That's what you're longing for. So it's a, it's a, okay, it's, it's a way to express what we feel when we look at what's going on in Ukraine right now. What does your heart do when you look at what's going on? In you? It grieves. And so what we're saying is fasting is a way to say, man, God, come, make all this wrong right. It's a way we long for, like a homesickness for God. It's the way we get in touch with our desperate need, right? It's, it's how long will you let evil men have their way in the earth, Lord? Like, come, break the sin, break the wickedness in the earth. And like this, like this prayer said, our eyes are on you, right? Come, Lord, make right all that's wrong. And here's the thing. It, that prayer works in our own lives too, not just in the world. When we fast, we're saying, Jesus, in my own strength, I can't even conquer the sins and insecurities in my own life. Maranatha, come, like come, right? Like vanquish the darkness in my heart, fix what's broken in me. When we fast, we echo Paul's desperate cry, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God that his strength is able. Come, Lord Jesus. Christian fasting is not how we earn our place amongst the children of God. It's not how we force God to bless us. That, that's already been given, y'all. It's already been given. Christian is fasting how we give voice to our heart's cry. More than all these things, I need you. I want you. I love you. He, John Piper likens Christian fasting to when he was a... This is a great picture. Stay with me. I know that's you know, a, lot of, a lot of scriptures today. Uh, when John Piper was a, a young Christian and he was courting his wife and he was working hundreds of, mi hundreds of miles away at a summer camp, okay? He was engaged to his wife, a, a bride-to-be, 
And he said mail call came right before lunch. And he said he would get a letter from Noel, which is his wife. So do you remember when you, if you're married, do you remember that time when you were like, you know, engaged, but maybe apart or something like that? He said he'd get a, he'd get a letter from his wife-to-be. And he said his hunger for food was silenced by the hunger of his heart. So instead of eating, he'd steal away to a quiet place and take in every word from that letter. And he says his heart would be strengthened in a way that food could never have strengthened him. He said, week by week, I was strengthened in hope and the reality just over the horizon of marriage. And love was kept alive. What a fascinating perspective of fasting. It's, it's expressing a heart, a the depths of your heart, homesickness for God. I've been made for you, Lord. And here I am, an alien and stranger in a, in a dry and weary land. Hmm? Let me give you one more thing for fasting. We'll get out of it because obviously this is a very exhilarating topic, right? Okay. Isaiah 50, this is great, okay? Isaiah 58 is going to reveal an, another outward thrust of fasting, Okay. So, in other words, if you're still like, I don't think fasting's for me, okay, well, you have to reckon with the Bible, okay? You're going to have to reckon with some of these things, and you're going to have to ask yourself why it isn't for you anymore, right? That's what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to take that away from you, okay? <laughs> so, Isaiah 58 uh, gives an outward thrust of fasting, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's beautiful, and, and this stuff that's said right here is way more important than anything I'm going to say today. Isaiah 58, 1 through 10. Cry aloud. Do not hold it back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say things like this. Why have we fasted and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've taken no knowledge of it? And God says this to that. Behold, in the day of your fasting, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is this, is such, is this the kind of fast that I choose? Just a day to humble himself? Is it to bow his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes, what we talked about last week, under him? Will you call this a fast, acceptable to the Lord? And then he changes gears. Is, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? What's a, a bond? We don't, we don't talk about bonds anymore, do we? It's a chain, something restricting you. God says, you know the kind of fast I like? So when you go around breaking off chains of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every burden. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. What an interesting picture, hiding yourself from your own flesh. What does he mean? Well, he's the poor, the needy person. In Christian language, we call these people EGRs. You know what that means? Extra grace required. It's when you see them come around the corner, you 
Uh, none of us do that, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you do these things. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. Here we go. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. Look at this sentence right here. And your gloom be as the noonday. See, God seems to think there ought to be a connection between fasting, repentance, following him, okay, and pouring yourself out for others. God seems to think the point of all your religious activity, fasting, obedience, humbling, work, all your obedience, all your going to church, all your doing the right things is not simply about accomplishing some sort of ceremonial personal piety in you. Or, as Oswald Chambers says, it's not about getting you clean and then putting you in God's display case behind glass so you don't get dirty anymore. God's fast, y'all. It's not about just lowering yourself, but it's about lowering yourself for the purpose of lifting someone else up. This is, this is profound. He says, it's not just about going without bread. It's about sharing bread. It's not just about taking off your ornaments. It's about clothing others. Fast, fasting is essentially going without something. And here, it's going without something not to lift yourself up in religious pride, not to comfort your own soul, but to lift another up, to comfort their soul. So he says, hey, look, it's no good fasting if you're oppressing your neighbor and speaking wickedness and pointing the finger, right? But if you pour yourself out, just, just sit on that sentence for a second, pour yourself out. This is, how, this is how we pour ourselves out, all right, in, in, my, in, in my life, right? Like, I get a cup, and then I pour my life into that cup, and I keep this, and then I'll pour a little bit out, right? I got a filter. That's how, I, that's how we pour ourselves out. We don't, the, the picture of pouring out is without restriction. That's the idea. The picture of pouring out is with, without hesitance. It's all out. And he's saying, if you will pour yourself out for the lessers, pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfied, then, right, your gloom will be as noonday. And let's just sit with gloom as noonday for a second because it's so profound, man. Your gloom as noonday, right? All of us have bad days, right? Anyone? No, just me. Cool. All right. Like Wednesday was like a blah day for me, like this week, probably because I paid my taxes that day. But... <laughs> All of us have bad days, we have bad weeks, we have bad months, we have bad years. And God is saying, God is saying, if you will have the audacity to make your life about serving and loving others, if you will become the kind of person who is poured out, if you will wear yourself out for others, not for your own needs and want, but for someone else's needs and want, right? If you will make a part of the routine of your life, 
to satisfy other people's desires. Your worst day, your worst season of worst darkness will still have the brightness of the full sun. That is what he is claiming. Are we, are we getting this? He's saying your darkest season will be full of the light of God. This is massive. If you will pour yourself out for other people, the, dark, the deepest darkness that you go through still have the warmth of God's love right in the center of it. Right in the center of that season of, of, of sorrow and grieving. and of God's love right in the center. He's, he's saying he's going to lift the entire the plane of existence, man, to where you're dark. I mean, are we getting this? This is huge. And what is, the, what is he saying? He's like, dude, get over yourself. It's not about you. Pour your life out for someone else, man. Like, I dare you, right? And he's saying, I will lift up the depths of your depression. Like the darkest night of your soul, still going to have like what noonday, the brightest time of day. You will still have the light of God in the midst of sorrow. This is profound, y'all. This is profound, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. Gloom is noonday. Why does pouring yourself out seem to have so much power to God? Why does it have to seem so much? That's a lot. Well, it's because the whole book is about someone who poured himself out unto death. The whole book's about, the whole book's about one who became afflicted, who became oppressed so others wouldn't have to. I mean, the whole book's about one who claimed to set the oppressed free, right, restore sight to the blind. In Luke 4, I'm going to wrap it up right here. In Luke 4, after Jesus fast in the wilderness, 40 days, 49, after that, he goes into the synagogue and he immediately reads a passage from Isaiah 61. And the language that he reads is remarkable in the overlap of this of the scripture we read earlier, right? He says, the spirit of the Lord's upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In other words... It was him who purchased liberty for us at his own cost. Jesus' business was about setting the oppressed free, right? It was about feeding the hungry. It was about clothing the naked, bringing the poor into his house, right? He didn't hide himself from our needs. That's the claim of what Jesus did. And if we intend to follow Jesus, we have to understand that it means lowering ourselves so that others could be lifted just like he did. We have to understand that. Right? We have to see that following Jesus means a radical commitment to sacrifice for the sake of others. It means we don't see our faith as only pertaining to us and our joy and our holiness. But we see our faith as God's way of extending his love to the undeserving, the poor, the afflicted, the hungry, spiritually and physically. Right? So is this happening in your life? And why are we not? And one of my prayers for this season is that God would displace us from the sinners of our life and that he would become central. And I'd argue that one of the only ways that can happen is when we take our eyes off ourselves and start putting them on God and others. So last week, I invited you guys to fast one meal. I don't know, probably, I'd be surprised if anyone did it. Right, but I want to up the ante, okay? I want to up the ante. And I want to challenge you this week to go one day without food. <laughs> right? So you, can, you could fast from sunrise to sunset, if you want. That's pretty easy. Or you could go from sunset to sunset, right? Some of you are like, no thanks, I have a special relationship with food, you know. Uh, but if you're able, I want to challenge you this week, and in place of those meals, to, to do this, to step in the gap for those around you. What do I mean by that? I mean, pour yourself out for someone else. 
Instead of eating a meal, get before God and don't bring your concerns. Bring the concerns of your friends and your family to him. Get underneath someone else and lift him up. Because my conviction, y'all, my conviction is that if we will start to get in that stream, the Holy Spirit is going to put wind in your sails, right? And, you, and you're going to find a new life poured into you tenfold of what you think you're giving up, right? So I want to invite you to come join us on Friday nights at 8 p.m. We just set aside time to pray for the season of Lent, and we're trying to get in this stream, y'all. We're trying to get our hearts aligned with God's concern in the earth and get over our own, huh? So I want to challenge you. If, you. if you can go one day this week without food and pray for other people, get, step into that gap, and if you want to come join us for prayer, I think you would have great ramifications in your life. All right, let's stand and pray. Sorry I went long.